Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 220, High Flying. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. But let's be honest, we cover a lot more than that. When humans return to Earth on American spacecraft, a high-altitude aircraft is deployed to capture imagery as it heads in, providing early data on a spacecraft status that helps mission control and recovery operations. That aircraft is called a WB-57. We've talked about the aircraft briefly on this podcast before, but today we're going to explore the aircraft, its operations, and some cool features in more depth. Joining us for this episode is Carrie Scott, goes by CJ. He's the Deputy Principal Investigator of SciFly, which is, of course, an acronym for Scientifically Calibrated In-Flight Imagery, based out of NASA's Langley Research Center in Virginia. We'll talk about the WB-57, its operations, what SciFly is all about, and some ongoing work to prepare for Artemis missions with Orion returning from the moon. Exciting stuff, so let's get right into it. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light for the red. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Hey, CJ. Thanks for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. Hi, Gary. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, so I'm excited to talk about the WB-57. I, I love this airplane. I got to see it at uh, Johnson Space Center a couple times um, and see some of the operations. But what I didn't realize is just, uh, you, you know, there's much more to this. And I, and I never really dove too deep into what it does and the science and uh, and some of the great investigations on board. So before we go into that, CJ, I want to understand a little bit about you. Uh, we were talking with Tom, and you can talk a little bit about Tom um, uh, before before we uh, get into you if you want. Uh, but he said, you are the person that's going to take over the reins for this sci-fi thing. So so big responsibility. Tell us about yourself and, and your career path that got you to where you are today. Yeah. Um, well, I was you know born and raised in in California, um, went to Chico State, uh, graduated in 2010 with a bachelor's in physics. Um, I was actually a, a high school and middle school science teacher. And uh, then I worked as a curriculum developer uh, while I was pursuing an aerospace uh, graduate degree. Um, uh, during that time, I spent a summer working at NASA Ames as in optomechanical engineering intern uh, for the SOFIA project, which is really cool. Uh, that's the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. It's like the world's largest airborne infrared observatory. Um, and uh, basically it's a 747 aircraft with a huge IR telescope that points out of the, uh, the aft section. So oh, cool. um, yeah, pretty neat stuff. Um, in 2017, I took a little break from school and uh, got an internship working at NASA Langley uh, in Virginia. And then I was hired as a aerothermodynamics researcher in 2019. Um, that's where I met Tom Horvath and uh, Rich Schwartz. They started the SciFly project um, back back when they started. It was called HiTherm. Um, and, you know, Basically, as an aerothermodynamicist, I kind of focused on, well, I, I focus on systems that 
basically help spacecraft survive, you know, the heating environment uh, during launch or reentry, you know, to Earth, say from space station or from the moon. Um, and, you know, I've always had a, a passion for human space exploration, spacecraft design, um, cosmology. So I've, I'm really grateful to have uh, been given the opportunity to work with Tom and Rich and the rest of the SciFly team uh, to support NASA's, uh, NASA's mission. Were you always into airplanes? Seems like, uh, you, all these opportunities you took, um, you know, Ames and Langley, you, you've been in the world of, uh, air, aerospace, right? Uh, with, especially with, with flight and, and NASA's a little bit of everything, but it seems like your interest lies with, uh, with planes. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's funny, you know, as a kid, I, I had a lot of Lego sets and didn't matter what was the picture on the box, it was going to be some type of flight vehicle, <laughs> whether it was an aircraft or a spaceship or something, it, it was always turns into an airplane at the end. Oh, that's hilarious. Awesome. Well, now you get to uh, do the adult version of that. So that's fantastic. Um, WB-57, let's talk about this, this particular aircraft, because I think that's uh Big part of some of the, you talk about sci-fi and we can get into that, but uh, let, let's first start with the aircraft. You talk about Sophia. This one is a little different, um, high altitude plane. CJ, what is the WB-57? Yeah, so, um, you know, actually JSC, uh, Johnson Space Center, is the home of the WB-57 high altitude um, research program, which owns um, the last three of these aircraft in the world. Uh, it originally, it was, uh, called the WB-57F, I think by General Dynamics, and they've been, these three have been repurposed uh, and are now based at uh, Ellington Field. Essentially, they are high altitude research aircraft. Um, they've been flying since the 70s, um, and, you know, today they are still an asset to the scientific community in, you know, human space flight. That's right. Um, now, Okay, if I was imagining, you know, being a pilot for this thing, and uh, I was going to do a research investigation, um, you know, what what would that uh, what would that look like? I, I'm assuming, you know, I can't just, you know, go in as like a passenger, right? I feel like I have to wear wear something fancy to fly this thing. Yeah, so um, I mean, the aircraft is it's pretty unique, right? It's a a mid wing kind of dual engine long-range aircraft. Um, it can fly for really long periods of time, uh, up to about 60,000 feet. Um, it's got a really long wingspan, about 122 and a half feet. And so it's almost, you know, its wingspan is almost double the length uh, from nose to tail. So, um, oh, wow. yeah, it, it really does take some special skill to, to fly these things. Um, for imaging missions, though, the crew, you know, usually operates below 50,000 feet, so they don't have to wear the bulky kind of full pressure suit. Um, the full pressure suit's pretty cool. <laughs> I've seen a few of the uh, the crew wearing them, and I mean, it's, you're, you're pretty much, you're almost like an astronaut, right? It's it's a whole thing. You got a helmet and <laughs> the whole, you know, the whole getup. It, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Um, the, the, the cockpit's got, you know, two members, uh, two flight crew. Um, there's a, a pilot, and uh, a sensor equipment operator or SEO. Um, the pilot, you know, sits in the front, has everything he needs to operate the aircraft, um, while the SEO or the backseater kind of 
uh, has all the navigational equipment, and, but also the controls for operating all the payloads that um, may be, you know, on the aircraft. So you got two people flying and sometimes they get to wear those super cool suits. Um, now in terms of a mission itself, right? I'm guessing it's not j just those two folks. They got some, a little bit of help on the ground. Yeah, there, there's a whole uh, host of personnel that really uh, make operating the WB-57 possible. Um, you know, the, uh, the maintenance personnel do excellent work, you know, literally getting this aircraft off the ground, uh, maintaining the, the vehicle. Um, as far as mission planning goes, you know, uh, we always begin with imaging objectives and, um, uh, you know, kind of go from there to develop, develop the mission more fully. But yeah, there are a lot of people involved um, at various levels that, that uh, make this type of work possible. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's explore mission planning a little bit more. So so say you know it sounds like you got a good support network on the ground. You got the 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 pilots ready to go. It's a it's a very large aircraft. When you're getting ready to perform a mission, what goes into that? What 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 do you have to do ahead of time to make sure you're ready to support whatever mission it is? Yeah. So um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, the the mission planning always begins with imaging objectives. So you know. What part of the flight are we looking at? Um, uh, what locations on the vehicle do does the customer want to see? Are there any dynamic events or particular you know phenomena that need to be imaged? So uh, the the SciFly team will typically you know collect information. Um, we call that like conops or a concept of operations from the customer, and then our team uh, will kind of use that data to develop a preliminary kind of mission geometry to meet the derived requirements or, or you know, the scientific objectives. Um, we will use, you know, high fidelity modeling tools to kind of compile and simulate the geometries of the vehicle and, you know, the theater of operations, the flight paths of the, you know, the, the target, the imaging aircraft. We can input, you know, the timing of key events. Um, we, you know, put in the, the payload specs and, um, basically, you know, we put the entire mission into a 3D virtual environment, and um, that allows us to to really communicate well, you know, back and forth with the customer to make sure that everyone's on the same page uh, for you know the imaging uh, mission. Let's let's give a couple of of examples of missions that at least, at least I'm aware of. Maybe you know of a couple of of other ones. When it comes to supporting, you know, for, for the WB fifty seven, supporting various missions, the ones I mean, we're talking human the human space flight down here at Johnson. So so the ones I'm aware of are particularly for landings of human space flight vehicles. So the ones I know of are you know SpaceX Dragon. When that lands in the Atlantic Ocean, WB-57 is deployed and, and provides some imagery. And the Orion, uh, and, and that was true for uh, EFT-1, Exploration Flight Test-1. And, and I know part of the discussion today is really gearing up for Artemis and supporting that in the future. So how do those work? Uh, let, give us an example of uh, what the team is doing to prepare for a SpaceX return or for uh, an Orion return. Yeah, definitely. Um... So, you know, each mission really is unique. Um, and depending on the target and the customer, we, you know, we optimize the flight to focus on 
you know, the critical event. So sometimes we're imaging uh, rocket launches. So we want to maybe focus on booster performance. Mm. Um, sometimes we need to uh, collect data to help assess, you know, material performance. Um, so, you know, we may be imaging like the thermal protection system of a, of a reentry vehicle. Um, and sometimes, you know, we focus on late stage vehicle recovery events like, like parachute deployment. Um, generally, we will kind of develop a, a flight profile uh, with the, the WB-57 crew. Uh, you know, keeping in mind flight safety is always the primary objective, right? Everyone's uh, safety first. So uh, the pilots always provide critical feedback on, you know, performance limitations, hazard boundaries, and other things like that. The backseaters will provide um, inputs to help us optimize the imaging system settings um, and like the gimbal performance uh, during the mission. Um, generally, the SEOs will configure the communication system. So it's important to be able to, to communicate both to and from the aircraft to the, the imaging support team you know, that's located in mission control. Sometimes we broadcast uh, images in real time and sometimes we really need to communicate a message up to the the uh, cockpit um, to you know modify the flight. Um, we get great support from the Spaceflight Meteorological Group at JSC. They kind of help us navigate through different weather systems, and um, of course, you know, uh, SciFly helps to provide you know, calibration of any of the sensors, and we do material analysis. Um, you know. It's really important to make sure sensors are properly configured so they receive the right amount of light to avoid any kind of overexposure, which would make you know, the image too bright, or underexposure, which can make the image too dim. Um, you know, overexposure, or sometimes we call it saturation, it reduces the scientific value of the data. And um, underexposure actually reduces the signal to noise ratio. So it makes it a lot harder to pinpoint, you know, um, uh, what what signal you're getting. Um, ultimately, you know, we can convert thermal signatures into temperature. Um, you know, that helps the, the researchers kind of verify their systems are performing uh, as expected or modify their design tools. As far as like a dragon uh, landing, you know, generally once we've developed all of this um, kind of pre-mission work, we compile that into a what's called a mission execution plan or an MEP. And we you know, share that with the customer, make sure everyone's on the same page. Then uh, we, will, we will receive like a family of possible trajectories and splashdown points uh, from SpaceX. Um, uh, the mission execution team will basically get those, uh, those family of trajectories, process them using the simulation tools that I kind of mentioned earlier and then provide the uh, information to the WB-57 flight crew, you know, prior to takeoff. Um, then, you know, the operations team will maintain contact with, you know, lots of different people within NASA at Mission Control or, you know, from SpaceX to kind of receive updated mission information as the, you know, mission elapses. Um, and generally, you know, we get a lot of this information prior to the Dragon undocking from ISS. Hmm. Um, any mission updates that we get, including, you know, the capsule status or undock timing, splashdown location, that gets shared to the, the WB-57 uh, crew. And then, 
they can kind of adjust their flight uh, accordingly. Um, Would they deploy from like Texas? Is that is that part of the reason that you need it so early? It's just because okay, we need a plan. We need to make sure we're at the right place, right time. Are you guys coming from Texas? So again, you know, that's really mission specific, but yeah, generally, you know, if we're flying out of Texas, the, the aircraft has got about six or seven hours of endurance. Um, so depending on the splashdown location, right, if it's, uh, if it's on the west side of, of Florida, you know, maybe somewhere in the, in the Gulf, um, flying out of Texas is, is not a problem. Uh, sometimes we need to fly uh, out of uh, Cape Canaveral so that we're a little bit closer and we have more loiter time uh, in the air. Um, and sometimes for, you know, splashdowns that are, you know, in the Pacific Ocean, the WB may forward deploy to uh, a location, you know, uh, in, in California. So, again, it, it really is mission specific. Yeah. OK, that makes a lot of sense. Um, let's get nerdy with the uh, with the imaging system for a bit. Um, you, you talked about that, that this is a, one of the capabilities of the WB-57 is it flies really high and it takes really cool pictures. Um, so let's let's learn a little bit more about that system. How does that work when you're flying? You know, when you're flying, how do you point the camera and what sorts of uh, imaging systems do you have? What kind of imagery are you able to capture from the plane? And then I guess overall, you know, why is that important? So for, you know, ongoing sci-fi missions supporting the NASA, NASA commercial crew, um, the primary payload is the kind of legacy system, which is a two-channel imaging system called Dynamite. That stands for Day and Night Airborne Motion Imager for Terrestrial Environments, um, which I, I really like the acronym. I think it's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> the, the, the legacy system is kind of located within the AIRS gimbal. Um, AIRS is the, the, the tracking system, so the airborne imaging and recording system. It's a two-axis gimbal system. Uh, that was originally designed for space shuttle launches. Um, it can change the the roll and pitch orientation of the uh, of the telescope, you know, relative to the air cramp. So it has a really wide field of regard, um, both in like azimuth and elevation. So I mean, picture kind of a cone of of available viewing out of the front of the aircraft, which is about you know 200 degrees wide, so to speak. Um, mm -hmm. Dynamite uses refractive optics, so basically a series of lenses uh, that provide the desired image magnification. And also, you get a really cool, like, continuous zoom capability. Um, there's actually two systems, and either can be modified uh, for use during, you know, night operations. Um, one channel is a visible, and the other channel is an infrared uh, imaging system. Um, so, you know, if you're not familiar with infrared systems, you know, all objects give off light based on their temperature. So we refer to this as like infrared. We don't typically see infrared with our eyes. Um, our skin actually is an infrared sensor, so you can kind of feel, you know, heat. But um, IR cameras detect these photons and then turn them into images so that we can kind of visualize what's going on. Um, so that light in the midwave spectrum is really good for acquiring targets at extreme distances. Um, tracking, and then you can infer surface temperature. Um, the visible systems provide really good spatial resolution, so you can get really good detail. Um, so that's kind of the, the legacy system. The SAMI system, which is currently under development, is a six-channel multispectral imaging system, which uses a reflective telescope. Um, 
SAMI stands for the uh, SciFly Airborne Multispectral Imager, um, which <clears throat> has been a really neat project. And um, uh, if you have a moment, I'm, I'm happy to tell you more about that. Please, Leah, let's dive right in. Sure, yeah. So um, it basically uses you know, a, a reflective telescope um, you know, which uses mirrors instead of lenses to provide the, the magnification. Uh, then, you know, the, the light is kind of filtered into a custom set of prisms called beam splitters, which separate the light by wavelength and then kind of direct them into individual uh, channels. And lenses are then used to focus each um, beam path on uh, separate detectors. So we've got four sensors which are aligned with the near field of view telescope. Um, that's the reflective telescope system. Those enable spatial imaging in the ultraviolet, the visible, the near-infrared, shortwave infrared, and midwave infrared wave bands uh, simultaneously. Uh, SAMI also has a high-speed filter wheel uh, for subdividing the, the mid-wave infrared channel into even smaller uh, narrow filter bands. Uh, the spinning filter wheel kind of lets us really accurately manage the photons coming from the target uh, that way we can infer surface temperature and, you know, see flow features associated with, you know, launching a rocket that, you know, not, aren't usually uh, observable with the naked eye. Um, SLS, you know, for example, Space Launch System will have uh, plumes uh, from the core stage, which contain a lot of water and CO2, um, and it's really hot. <laughs> Both of those <laughs> gases are transparent in the visible. And so, uh, you know, when we image in the infrared, we can actually see those kind of invisible plume structures. Uh, and then we can kind of see how those are impacting, you know, the vehicle, if they're causing additional heating or uh, things like that. CJ, that was incredibly nerdy and I absolutely love it. Now, taking all of that, you know, here's how it works, right? Here's how the imaging system works. And here's especially the, the difference between the legacy and the new system. Uh, particularly with the new system, but really just the imagery in general. Why is this important? Why are we deploying planes to support some of these human spaceflight missions? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, you can actually gain a lot of insight uh, from collecting uh, data from a vehicle while it's in a real flight environment. Um, generally, you know, engineers will use um, software tools to kind of model, you know, the physics of of the flight that they're uh, uh, that they're planning for. Um, they can use wind tunnels to kind of simulate, you know, narrow regions of the flight profile. Um, but Mother Nature is really good at, at, at solving physics problems. And so um, what we are able to do using the airborne imagery is collect that data from a real flight, real flight environment to inform uh, vehicle design um, uh, specifications. For example, um, Surface temperature um, can tell us a lot about the performance of a uh, thermal protection system or a heat shield, right? So for a capsule, um, as it reenters the atmosphere, you know, going like you know, 17,000 miles an hour, there's a lot of uh, energy uh, which is, is transformed into heat at the, at the heat shield. And uh, we want to protect the crew from that heat um, by using the thermal protection system. So making sure it's thick enough and it has the right performance um, 
to kind of dissipate that heat is really important to, you know, for crew safety. Um, you know, if we obtain certain spectral features, it tells us a lot about the, um, the gases surrounding spacecraft during entry. Uh, during entry. Uh, this helps us to kind of modify and, um, the design tools that we use to, to make predictions and explore, you know, other planetary atmospheres. Um, but for human spaceflight, you know, parachute recovery systems are one of the most important and technically challenging subsystems on the spacecraft. Um, they're also one of the highest risk items in terms of safety for the crew. So uh, NASA engineers will, you know, collect this, uh, they look at this imagery to evaluate the performance of the parachute recovery systems on a regular basis, uh, ensuring that, you know, we've got a good um, database of parachute recovery system performance. And from there, you can actually develop uh, kind of newer updated models on just how exactly parachutes work. It's, um, it's an old technology that, you know, we, um, that we're still really learning a lot about, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Parachutes are kind of do a, a very magical thing, right? So let's, let's keep, um, looking at it and, and see what we can find out. And it seems like you're, you're still learning more and more all super critical stuff. CJ, what you're talking about is, I mean, I, I think the way you described it is perfect. It's, you just, you can replicate the uh, flight environment as much as you want, but you're, it's never going to be quite like a flight environment It's the perfect place to, to gather such important data. You mentioned this a couple of times, CJ, uh, throughout today's discussion. You mentioned something called SciFly. Uh, so tell us a little bit about this uh, this effort here. Yep, uh, SciFly is the scientifically calibrated in-flight imaging team, um, and we're generally based out of NASA Langley in Virginia. Um, we've got a pretty broad team uh, with various capabilities from uh, you know, ranging from, you know, mission support uh, at uh, in, in MCCH or Mission Control Center in Houston. Um, we've got aerothermodynamicists to, you know, help us kind of figure out what regions of flight are probably most critical to capture. Uh, we've got a lot of imaging specialists that we uh, that we use to help develop our imaging systems and tune them appropriately, um, calibration support. Um, tons of programmatic support. Um, we and, and well, we also uh, we also can do like post processing of the actual collected imagery. So what you get isn't really, you know, what you get from the camera isn't exactly a temperature image. It's really, um, you know, radiance uh, to use kind of a you know it's a physical unit, and then mm. uh, you have to kind of convert those radiance values into into temperature. And in order to do that, you've got to calibrate the system using a Kind of a known uh, temperature source, um, so that's how you kind of get from the the images to the temperature values. Um, so we kind of do uh, a lot of a lot of different things. Um, generally, we facilitate the use of different aircraft or ground imaging platforms uh, for various customers, and we will do the mission planning. Um, you know, try to optimize or recommend optimal sensor settings, actually deploy the, uh, uh, deploy those platforms, collect the data, and then uh, provide that data to the customer. And you've been doing this for, for a while now, or SciFly at least, has been 
kind of collecting this this data for a while, right? We've, we've supported a lot of missions we've talked about uh, a little bit earlier on today's podcast with SpaceX, uh, mentioned EFT-1, right? And I think I think SciFly even supported a couple of the shuttle flights, some of, some of the last ones, right? That's right. Um, so originally the team uh, was called Hytherm, and that was the that that mm. project was um, you know, started by Tom Horvath and uh, Rich Schwartz uh, here at NASA Langley, um, and they were doing um, boundary layer uh, experimentation on the shuttle. So it started with let's image the 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 underside of the shuttle where the thermal protection system is during reentry. See if we can get a global kind of picture of what the what the temperature looks like under there, and um, it was it was successful. Um, that led to you know follow-on missions where they actually kind of bolted a little uh, a piece of metal under one of the uh, one of the wings, and uh, were able to image the impact of that little uh, protuberance, or we, we call it a boundary layer trip. Um, they were they were actually able to measure the thermal uh, uh, effects of putting a little trip under one of the wings um, hmm. uh, on, on shuttle flights. Uh, yeah, I, I, I came to the team in uh, 2017, and since then, you know, we've we've imaged uh, Dragon's uh, Dragon capsule reentry, um, you know, Falcon 9 launches, uh, Falcon 9, uh, you know, booster recovery. Uh, we're part of the Dragon in-flight abort test uh, imaging. Uh, we've done SpaceX parachute developmental and qualification drop tests, um, which helped to um, help the Dragon capsule become human rated. Um, and uh, you know we've we've imaged uh, commercial resupply uh, missions. We were also uh, supported uh, Boeing uh, at pad abort test and um, during also during uh, orbital flight test one. And um, yeah, actually in 2020 we did a an imaging campaign in Australia uh, during the, the Hayabusa 2 asteroid sample return uh, capsule reentry. So that, that was pretty fascinating. Um, you know, that was probably the second fastest uh, man-made object to enter the atmosphere. Um, so that, that was pretty neat. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, you know, recently we did a heliophysics experiment, um, uh, basically imaging some um, plasma physics uh, that were you know, there was a plasma emitted from like a sounding rocket uh, that was launched out of Wallops Flight Facility here in Virginia, and we were imaging the uh, the interaction with the particles and the um, you know solar wind. Um, really cool stuff. Yeah, super cool. I'm trying to imagine what it's like for you, CJ. So, so um, sounds like you've been very busy, right? You got a lot of missions that you're supporting. What's the day like, you know, when it's time to get up and, and to support a mission? Where are you going? What are you looking at? Uh, what's it like for you? Yeah, so um, I have different roles on the team. Um, my primary role, you know, as the as the deputy PI, I, I've been really kind of a system engineer, um, you know, responsible for getting SAMI uh, designed, built, and tested. Um, day to day, you know, we're, we're talking with different folks. Um, trying to kind of make progress on our, our planning. We're, we're always planning something, That's that seems like. Um, in terms of mission support, you know, it really depends on the role. Uh, sometimes, you know, the mission execution team will be supporting from, uh, from Houston, uh, be in uh, one of the flight control rooms with, you know, headset on. You've got your monitors, your computers, your, your 
collecting data, processing, um, processing timing information, et cetera. Um, sometimes for ground operations, you know, I'll be out in the field. Um, many times we've been in the desert <laughs> for many nights in a row, uh, you know, with our telescope system set up, uh, getting calibrated on stars, things like that. Um, I've spent more than a few nights camping in the desert uh, to support a very early uh, imaging uh, imaging test. So, um, you know, it, it really does vary. Um, I get to travel, um, you know, pretty frequently, which is which is it's nice, but also um, you know, spending the time away from the family can be tough sometimes. Yeah, I totally get it. But it sounds like you're going on all these really cool adventures. You're you're camping. You're you're you know, you're, you're working with so many people across the United States, you're supporting missions across the ocean. Um, really cool stuff. Uh, you talked about, um, uh, really building up the capabilities, um, with this, uh, I think it was Sammy to support the future. And, and it has a couple new capabilities. And I think that's what's uh, an exciting takeaway from, from this discussion is some of the cool stuff that we can expect for missions in the future, particularly with Artemis, right? When we have uh, these capsules returning from the moon, we're going to have all these very interesting capabilities to uh, collect data on, on the support for Artemis missions. So, um, so CJ, tell me how, uh, you know, the sci-fi team and, and this, this new equipment is going to help us with moon missions. Yeah, uh, it is, it is very exciting. So, you know, with, uh, with the SAMI system, it was designed specifically to help assess the heating and thermal environment near the, uh, the base of the space launch system rocket. So, you know, as the rocket is, you know, traveling, towards space the plume you know as you go higher and higher in the atmosphere the pressure decreases and with, with as the pressure decreases the plumes their shape kind of expands out gets wider and wider and um due to some kind of interesting uh aerodynamics some of that plume gas which is really hot uh can actually become like entrained in the in the flow from the you know, the tip of the rocket and kind of start to recirculate. And actually, instead of just going away, you know, back from the rocket, it can actually kind of start to crawl up the vehicle, um, up the core stage. Now, a lot of the avionics or the, the, the computers that control the, uh, where the thrusters are pointing, uh, a lot of the avionics systems are near the aft end of the rocket. Um, and so, <clears throat> you know, we we don't want that region to get too hot or else, you know, it could be a bad day. Um, so SAMI's designed to be able to image things that we can't see in the visible um, and kind of help us inform what the surface temperature is going to be like in that kind of uh, base heat region or the aft region of the of the SLS uh, rocket. Um, you know, again, as things come back from the moon, they're going to be coming in with a lot more energy than they uh, than capsules coming from low Earth orbit, you know, departing from space station. Um, and so that that energy has to go somewhere, and you know, it goes into the heat shield, it goes into the uh, into the shock layer or the you know the uh, kind of the glowing plasma that you know you see on movies and stuff that kind of goes around the vehicle as it reenters. So um, being able to image and collect, you know, temperature 
values for those regions of flight are going to be really important. Um, again, parachute recovery systems are critical. So um, we want to be able to see inflation dynamics. We want to see vehicle wake interactions, how the wake uh, can you know, influence how the parachutes are, are performing, um, any possible debris contact, um, or if there's any anomalies, you know, we want to be able to, you know, visibly uh, or, you know, thermally see the root cause uh, for any of those anomalies. Um, it's also really, really good uh, to capture these dynamic events like, you know, heat shield jettison or um, uh, drogue deployment, things like that. Um, really, really helps to verify that all the hard work that the, uh, you know, the numerous engineers who design these systems have put in to making sure they work. What we do is we provide images and say, hey, look, your system worked as you expected. And if it doesn't, then we also provide, you know, some data. So, hey, here's maybe why it didn't perform like you thought. So um, uh, it's just really, for I'm really fortunate to uh, kind of be able to contribute um, you know, to the NASA mission, I, it does, uh, it does feel pretty good. Not gonna lie. Seriously. I mean, that, and, and I think that's the perfect place to, to end CJ is, is thinking about that. Just, um, what you're talking about is you're, you're supporting some of the most critical phases of, of these flights. You're supporting launches, you're supporting landings, supporting parachutes. And like you said, you got a lot of, uh, you got a lot of engineers, a lot of smart people relying on the data that you're getting, um, to help make the missions safer, better, more efficient, um, um, everything. And that's, and that's the work that you're doing. And that's the work that your team is doing. Thinking about that, just, you know, it, it, this, this is a seemingly, you know, maybe from the outside, folks may think that this is a small part of the mission. Oh, there's a plane flying, flying near a spacecraft, right? It's not the spacecraft itself, but that data is so critical. So thinking about that, your contributions and your team's contributions to to making spaceflight successful and how that all comes together. Yeah, it's uh, it really is an honor to to be um, involved with uh, with spaceflight in, in this way. Um, you know, the old adage, you know, failure is not an option, right? We only get one shot to get this data, so we try very very hard to uh, to do everything we can. Uh, to plan for contingencies and all the rest so that um, when the time comes, we're in the right place at the right time with uh, the right sensors so that we can collect the right data and get it to the right folks um, so they can make the right decisions. That's some important stuff, CJ. And uh, it seems like you're enjoying it, though. It seems like it's, uh, it's something you're very passionate about and something you're very knowledgeable about. I'm definitely enjoying it. <laughs> There's a... Uh, uh, there are some perks, right? I get to hang out with uh, airplanes <laughs> and spaceships and um, play with telescopes for a living. So uh, things could be worse. <laughs> All right, CJ, we'll leave it there. That was a, this was an awesome discussion. Um, I, I love getting super deep into into how this stuff works. It's, it's very interesting stuff, and it is critical to the success. Uh, and the really the continued success of missions, all critical stuff. So CJ, appreciate you coming on Houston Wave Podcast today. Thanks for your time. Hey, thanks a lot, Gary.
Hey, thanks for sticking around. I hope you learned something today, and I definitely did with uh, CJ. Awesome stuff, learning about all the imagery capabilities of the WB-57. Uh, he's supporting a lot of missions that are going to the International Space Station, as well as Artemis. He talked about the SpaceX Dragon coming down. He talked about some data on the Falcon 9. Uh, he also talked about the SLS, uh, Space Launch System, and the Orion. All kinds of interesting data being gathered from those missions. Check them all out at nasa.gov ISS, as well as nasa.gov Artemis. We're one of many NASA podcasts across the entire agency. You can check us all out at nasa.gov podcasts, or you can talk to just us at the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea or ask a question. Uh, just make sure to mention it's for us at Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded on September 10th, 2021. Thanks to Alex Perriman, Pat Ryan, Norm Moran, Belinda Polito, and Tom Horvath. And of course, thanks again to CJ Scott for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.